Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, appearing before committee. I'm not a member or supporter of any political party in Canada. After weeks of being accused of preferential treatment, Dominic Barton responds to conservative allegations. We'll hear what the former managing director for McKinsey and Company had to say to MPs. Also, so I do feel optimistic about it. Setting the stage for next week's first minister's meeting, the BC Premier is already in the nation's capital along with members of his cabinet. What is he looking for in housing and in health care? And New guidelines to protect Canadians living in long-term care, but with no teeth or mandatory requirements, will they actually protect anyone? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Sarabio. Dominic Barton is a former Canadian ambassador to China. He's also a well-known businessman and past director of the consulting firm McKinsey & Company. But most recently, it is his relationship with the Prime Minister that's been highlighted, held up as reason for the tens of millions of dollars McKinsey has secured in consulting contracts with the federal government. The high-priced consultants are making off like bandits. Uh, there's, been, there's $15 billion a year in federal contracts by the Trudeau government to high-priced consultants. That's $1,000 for every single family in Canada. And one of the biggest winners, Justin Trudeau's friends over at McKinsey. His personal friend, Dominic Barton, the former director of McKinsey, will be testifying because Conservatives launched an investigation into the more than $100 million of contracts that some public servants have said was for work that was of little or no value. And we want answers to these questions. We want to know why the insiders close to Trudeau keep getting rich while everyone else gets poor. And we will hopefully get answers on that today. Well, Dominic Martin did get his chance to share what he thinks of all this today. Appearing before the Government Operations Committee investigating government contracts, and in Barton's case, his relationship with the Prime Minister. In July 2018, I announced I was retiring from McKinsey and began to build my next chapter, which included public, private and foundation board roles. To support my wife, Geraldine, and her career, I moved from New York to Hong Kong. In August 2019, I was asked to become ambassador to China, where my primary mandate was to secure the release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. I then had to resign for more than a dozen roles I'd recently taken on as part of my post-retirement work. I want to make three quick observations that I hope will be helpful. First, I want to be clear that I had no involvement whatsoever in any awarding of paid work to McKinsey by the federal government since I relocated to Asia in 1996. In joining the public service as ambassador to China in 2019, I underwent a thorough conflict of interest process with the Ethics Commissioner to ensure that my prior roles with McKinsey and elsewhere would not conflict with my public service obligations, and that included a full proactive recusal that screened me from dealing with McKinsey and, of course, any decisions made by the federal public service relating to McKinsey. Second, federal procurement work involves a structured process. The procurements are not evaluated at the political level, but by civil servants. Of the public sector engagement since 2015 reported by the media, 
McKinsey has publicly stated that the vast majority were the result of publicly tendered competitive requests for proposals independently evaluated by public servants based on objective point-rated technical and pricing criteria. The rest, the rest were through a national master standing order which also follows a rigorous procurement process. Consultants are often selected by governments and the private sector and social sector because they are able to provide specialized expertise, innovation and insights from global experience, advice that is objective and independent, flexibility to help when and where needed without carrying those same costs at other times, and a deep bench to allow analysis to be completed quickly. It's also important to separate the work of McKinsey from the times that I as a private citizen sat on several advisory councils as a volunteer at the request of Prime Minister Harper and Ministers Flaherty and Morneau. Those advisory councils made recommendations to elected officials. Sometimes they took them, sometimes they didn't. In these instances, advice came from a panel of volunteers convened by the government, not from McKinsey. I chaired the Growth Council and McKinsey supported the Growth Council's work by providing data and information to help the Council on a pro bono basis. Third and finally, I will note here that the National Post recently reported that in the last full fiscal year and in March 31, 2022, the Government of Canada spent at least $22.2 billion on external consultants of which McKinsey contracts represented $17 million. And when it came to the Prime Minister, Mr. Barton did not hesitate. He said the two are not friends. Well, for their thoughts on Dominic Barton's testimony, we're joined once again by Bill Curry, who's the Deputy Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, and Najud Amali's economics reporter for the Canadian Press. Thank you uh, to the two of you for joining us once again. Listen, Bill, I, I, I want to start with you because, you know, at the heart of this, at least when it comes to Dominic Barton, it really is the central question. Did his relationship with the Prime Minister lead to the awarding of contracts to McKinsey? Uh, Mr. Barton was clear in his answer. He says no. What do you make of his reasoning? What do you make of his testimony? Well, a lot of the questions that were put to him directly, he said he couldn't directly answer. So that was partly because he left the company in 2018. So anything that had to do with uh, after that, he he often said he couldn't answer, and that includes a period where the, the contracts to McKinsey were increasing. But his overall message was to say that, you know, while it might make a good story in his words, uh, there is no link between his advisory work for the Trudeau government of 2016 and 2017 and the fact that in the years afterwards, contracts to McKinsey went up and up and up every year. Um, I think there was a, a bit of a surprise or challenge to that from the Conservatives during the meeting where they revealed some emails that they got through access to information saying that uh, there was actually a period in 2020 where McKinsey did send some emails to the government and used their past connections to the Advisory Council as some background to try to arrange some meetings to talk about McKinsey work. So the Conservatives uh, used that uh, as, a, as a line of, to challenge that view that there was no connection. But Barton just said, well, you know, that was after I left and I don't know anything about it. So you can ask McKinsey and, uh, and the people who are leading the company now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Najud, I'll get you to jump in now because, uh, of course, Mr. Barton's name has been bandied about by opposition MPs. Do you think the testimony he provided today diffused uh, those accusations, those allegations? What did you make of the testimony? Yeah, so to add to what Bill said, he really was distancing himself from those contracts. You know, in his opening remarks, he says that it's been, he's had nothing to do with any federal contracts awarded to the firm since he left Asia in 1996. Uh, he went on to add that he 
is not part of McKinsey. It's been three and a half years since he sold off his uh, shares with the firm. And so he did that and also at the same time clarified what he views his relationship with the government and the prime minister to be, you know, notably saying that they're not friends, that the relationship was professional. And so I think that is how he put together his case for why he, he actually shouldn't be the focus uh, of this study. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Bill, the, 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 the focus really for the Conservatives has, has been the, the, the value of the contracts that have been awarded to McKinsey. They've jumped up exponentially since the days uh, of, of Prime Minister Harper. But, you know, in that opening testimony, in that opening statement, we played it for our audience just a, a few moments ago, uh, Mr. Barton noted the fact that in the fiscal year that ended March uh, 2022, out of some $20 billion, only $17 million went to McKinsey when you look at uh, the outsourcing of these contracts. What do you make of that number and how uh, either that helps Dominic Barton's case or helps the conservative argument? I mean, that is a fair point, and that is a point that uh, when this committee started its research on Monday on this topic, uh, researchers from Carleton University made that point as well, saying McKinsey is a relatively small slice of this uh, larger pool of contract outsourcing, and uh, in their view, it would be better to focus on all of that instead of just McKinsey. Uh, we saw at the end of the meeting today, NDP MP Gord John suggested that uh, they broaden this particular study to include some other consulting firms like Deloitte. So uh, that might happen. So there's definitely some merit to that. Uh, what makes McKinsey different, though, uh, is a couple of things. Uh, it's that, that, that blurring of the lines because Dominic LeBlanc, uh, I keep saying Dominic LeBlanc, but Dominic Barton was uh, both an advisor through the advisory council and his company was getting work. So he was, he's trying to keep those things different, but I mean, he was the head of McKinsey while, while he was giving this advice. So it's hard to keep that separate. And then secondly, this is a company that in recent years has had some pretty high profile uh, conflict of interest issues and controversies, including getting involved in supporting the growth of opioid uh, use in the United States. So that's obviously a big issue. And working with uh, you know, company, uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, and Russia, um, and being involved in some other scandals in France and South Africa. So. There's a lot of questions that the opposition has legitimately about why is the government contracting with a company that has some several controversies around the world. Okay, so I have less than a minute here, so but I'm going to ask both of you then, because if that's the case, if they're raising questions about McKinsey and its past operations, is the Dominic Barton portion of this now over? Is it solely on McKinsey, or will Dominic Barton's name keep coming up, Jude? Well, he's been the focus. I don't really see that changing in terms of we, us forgetting about Dominic Barton. We'll see what happens when uh, the committee looks at uh, John's motion to expand the study to other firms. Um, I, I would assume that when McKinsey executives show up at the committee that they will also be asked about Dominic Barton and uh, his role with government and with the, with the firm. Mm -hmm. And what do you say to, to that, Bill? I, I agree. I mean, Eventually, they are going to call people who are current leaders of McKinsey. So I think that's when you can get into more questions about why these contracts gone up, went up and, and whether they were using their connections to Dominic Barton and his work as an advisor to get in the door and get more contracts. Uh, the Conservatives say that the emails that they've obtained through access to information suggest that. So I would assume that would be their line of questioning when they get McKinsey officials before them in future meetings.
Okay. Well, once again, thank you to the two of you. Really good to get your insight onto this. Uh, Bill, Najud, have a good evening. Thank you. You too. Also today in Ottawa, Amira Elgwabi says she is sorry for the way her words have hurt Quebecers. Elgwabi is Canada's new special representative for combating Islamophobia. Quebec politicians want her removed over past comments on Bill 21. But Elgwabi says she is ready to use her role for more dialogue and more listening in Quebec and across the country. The course of my efforts to bring awareness to the various ways that we face discrimination the way that I describe that caused hurt, and that was never my intention. My intention has always been, and my career demonstrates that, that I want to bring people together, I want people to listen, and Mr. Blanchet has demonstrated that he does too, and we had a very good discussion, and we're looking forward to building more opportunities for dialogue. Al-Gwabi was on Parliament Hill today to meet face-to-face -face with the Bloc Québécois leader. Yves-François Blanchet saying he would approach their talk with an open mind. Amid the controversy, the Prime Minister did speak out earlier this morning, saying no one should be jumping to any conclusions because of the reaction in Quebec to Al-Gwabi's appointment. Quebecers are not racists. Quebecers are among the people who are the strongest defenders of individual rights and freedoms, along with a lot of other Canadians. It's super easy for people to simplify and try to attack either side. And what we need is a conversation about the fact that we all agree that rights and freedoms need to be protected, and how in a pluralistic society, a place of diversity and strength, we're able to not just coexist, but understand each other, respect each other's priorities and desires, and build a better future. These are the things that societies like Canada will always have to grapple with. And the way to grapple it is to bring forward people who are open to those conversations and open to that engagement. And that's uh, what I know that Amira is. Now, also on this caucus day on Parliament Hill, we heard from the Conservative leader commenting on a pilot program underway in British Columbia. It decriminalizes small possession of illicit drugs that include opioids, coke, methamphetamines, and MDMA. You not only need to take a walk down the streets of East Vancouver, where addicts lay face first on the pavement, where people are living permanently in tents and encampments, but you just need to look at the data a 300% increase in drug overdose deaths in British Columbia since Trudeau took office eight years ago. The Trudeau NDP approach is on open display in Vancouver. It is a complete disaster. It is hell on earth. We're gonna reverse that policy and we're gonna reverse it, we're gonna replace it with recovery and treatment. And one other note on this Wednesday, the former interim leader for the Conservative Party, Candace Bergen, has announced her retirement from Parliament Hill. Bergen was first elected in 2008. She was a minister in the Harper government and led the party after Erno O'Toole was ousted until Pierre Polyev won the leadership race last September. I'm choosing to leave now, not because I'm tired or I've run out of steam. In fact, it's the exact opposite. I feel hopeful and re-energized, hopeful for our strong and united Conservative Party and our caucus under the courageous and principled leadership of my friend Pierre Polivare. 
I feel honored and respected by my fellow Conservative colleagues and by so many of you, my fellow Canadians, who have reached out to me in emails or in calls or when I see you out and about. You have been kind and so encouraging. I'm more energized than ever and I'm optimistic and excited for the future. We're now just six days away from the First Minister's meeting that will take place right here in Ottawa. But ahead of that meeting, the B.C. Premier is already in the nation's capital along with members of his cabinet. Today, meeting with the Prime Minister, yes, talking about health care, but also other issues, includes, including housing. So to talk about all of that, we're now joined by B.C.'s Housing Minister, Ravi Kellan. Minister, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So as I say, a lot of issues to discuss mm -hmm. as the members of your cabinet come together along with the Premier to, to meet with counterparts here in Ottawa. Uh, let's begin with your portfolio, though, yeah. uh, housing. And when I think about British Columbia as one that used to live in the Lower Mainland, mm -hmm. affordability, of course, is such a huge issue. How is that issue figuring out in this visit? Well, BC has always been uh, a desirable place for people to live, and uh, with that means we have uh, large populations that come there. And uh, we've always seen higher prices for homes, but also higher rents. Uh, but what we've seen coming out of the pandemic is a real skyrocket in those prices. And, uh, and Premier Eby coming in as a new premier has made uh, health care and housing his top priorities. And so the, the message we're bringing here to meet with our colleagues on the federal side is, you know, we really want them to be stepping into that in these fields in a bigger way, because through cooperation, we're going to be able to make more of an impact in our communities than if we are just, uh, you know, uh, five hours uh, apart. So, so how do you envision that kind of uh, work together between these two levels to, to address an issue like affordability? Well, uh, certainly on the housing side, it means we're going to need to build more. I mean, we have two decades of underinvestment in housing in British Columbia. Uh, we don't have the stock of affordable housing that we need to ensure that we can provide it for the people that need it. And we're and seeing... Are you talking about rental or ownership? We're here? talking about rental and ownership, but more so on the rental side. We have uh, some of the highest rental rates in the country right now, and, uh, and we have a shortage of rental stock right now. And what it's doing is it's putting pressure on all of our society, and we're seeing now an increase in encampments where people have good paying jobs uh, but they can't afford a place to live and so they're finding themselves living in tents which is heartbreaking and unacceptable quite frankly and so my message again to the my federal counterpart is uh, let's get to the table let's even let's talk about matching dollars let's build housing together so that we can uh, address the pressures we're seeing in our system when it comes to supportive housing and complex care housing but also build the rentals we need for our growing population mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know I'm also wondering about how federal policy affect jurisdictions like British Columbia because of course I don't have to tell you uh, the federal government announcing the fact that they want to increase immigration to this country with a, a target of an annual intake of some uh, uh, half million new Canadians by 2025 how does that affect uh, what you're hoping to achieve when it comes to housing in the province well it's a big challenge for us and you know we want immigration we know we need it in British Columbia our natural population will start declining by 2030 so we welcome it but it's not going to be Successful if we don't support those that are already here and those that are coming with housing. Uh, you know, it's not acceptable for people to come here and then find out that they have to live seven, eight people to one bedroom suites. It's just not acceptable. And so my message to the federal minister is let's do it 
you know, let's bring people in at those numbers. We need that, but let's do it with a thoughtful approach to address the critical issue, which is healthcare and housing. If we do those things well, we'll ensure that those are people that are coming will be successful here in uh, BC, but in Canada as well. So you've had meetings today. Any indication that you're going to get the kind of partnership you're looking for? Well, we've uh, seen some positive steps when it comes to healthcare, uh, and the Prime Minister has indicated that uh, there'll be a proposal coming, and I know the, Prime, uh, the Premier will be uh, Premier will be here next week to have those discussions, so that's positive. On the housing side, uh, there's an openness for a conversation. We'll have more conversations tomorrow. But again, I, I'm, uh, I, I want to be hopeful. Uh, we've had a good working relationship with the federal government, but every good relationship needs once in a while for people to say, we need more. And, uh, and this is a situation, we're investing over 800 million a year in housing. And the federal government is roughly around 100 million. And so we need more of an investment in BC so we can achieve the goals we want together. Now, you mentioned healthcare, and, and you know, you, you talk about increased numbers, and that is what the provinces have been asking out of Ottawa more money for healthcare. Any indication as to what we might see on, on uh, Tuesday and next week? Well, we don't have an indication yet, and uh, as Premier Eby highlighted, it's always good to know in advance of the conversation. Uh, but uh, the fact that there's an understanding that we're going to be uh, having the provinces at one table with the federal government is a positive step. The fact that there's a proposal coming is a positive step. I know Premier Horgan was advocating for this in a big way before he uh, um, was done as, as Premier. And so to seeing this conversation, that's very important for us. Uh, and then, of course, the details will be important. And Premier will be highlighted today for us. Um, of course, core funding is critical, but we also want to figure out how we can support our seniors who are in long-term care, how we can recruit more nurses and doctors and, and train the professionals up. All these will be important pieces of the conversation. Yeah, well, well, certainly the, the federal government have, has its own priorities in giving out this money. It's looking for outcomes, not just a dollar, as the provinces mm -hmm. are asking for. They're looking for specific outcomes and data. You mentioned a couple of issues there. What are the other uh, fronts, other issues where the provincial and the federal uh, aspirations might come together in this healthcare accord? Well, I would say mental health is a new piece. Uh, you know, our systems aren't built uh, for the mental health uh, supports that they need to be. And, and we've seen coming out of the pandemic, there's a greater awareness, a greater understanding of how important mental health is. And so what we need to do is ensure that, uh, you know, care for seniors, uh, long-term care pieces are there. We need to make sure that uh, the, the trained professionals that we need are being trained here and, and, and processes are being fast-tracked for them if they're coming internationally and we need a greater emphasis on mental health you know we've had uh, unfortunately very high numbers of overdose deaths um, and and so that is a top of mind issue for us and we're hoping that there's a core funding conversation uh, but there's also perhaps an opportunity for provinces to identify key issues that they want to address with the federal government uh, along with that core funding Minister, really appreciate the time. Uh, next time in Victoria. I hope so, yeah. I look forward to seeing you there. <laughs> Me too. Thank you for this. Thank you. Well, as we noted last night, there are now new national standards for long-term care in this country. They come to us from the Health Standards Organization, and they're meant to prevent the horrors and the kind of tragedy that we witnessed in long-term care homes in the early part of the COVID-19 pandemic. But these new standards are voluntary. No care home, no province, no territory, nor municipality are required to implement the standards. So will they really do anything to protect anyone? To talk about this, we are reaching out right now to Laura Tamlin-Watts. She is the president and the CEO of CanAge, a national seniors advocacy group. Laura, nice to see you again. Thank you for being here. 
Thank you. So listen, uh, let's begin with the obvious shortfall of these standards. There is nothing mandatory about them. What's your reaction to that? Well, there's nothing mandatory about them just yet. Remember, it was the standards associations that worked with Canadians and experts all across the country, and I was part of that process. And all they can do is create accreditation standards. That is what they can do. Then it has to go to the government. And this is where we're looking for the provinces to require these standards. That's the piece we're missing. Only Quebec right now requires long-term care homes to even be accredited. So we're looking for Ontario and the other provinces and territories to say accreditation, yes, and use these ones. Now, you mentioned Ontario and Paul Calandra is the Minister for Long-Term Care in the province of Ontario. He already says that he's not interested in watering down what Ontario already has. So does that worry you in any way about the implementation of these standards? Uh, those comments worry me on a number of different levels. First, that's not what standards do. He seems to be conflating legislation and standards in a way that is concerning. What standards do is create accreditation minimums. What legislation does is create the frameworks for those. So these are complementary. They don't run into each other. The second piece that's deeply worrying is as we are going into that February 7th meeting, those conversations that are happening right now with the federal government and the health ministers, national standards for long-term care and funding them from the feds is on the table. So if he's being dismissive now, that's deeply worrying. I'm hoping it's just posturing and not actually their position. Okay, so you mentioned the First Minister's meeting, which will take place next Tuesday uh, here in Ottawa. And, you know, given the last campaign, we did hear the Prime Minister when he was campaigning to be re-elected. He, he did promise, Justin Trudeau promised legislating some kind of national standard. Uh, given, and, and you noted this, that long-term care is a provincial responsibility, do you think a national legislative framework would do anything? It'll have to be drafted very carefully, and this is my lawyer hat on right now. Obviously, they can't go too deep into provincial jurisdiction, and that's not going to go over well anyway with some provinces, particularly Alberta and Quebec. But what they can do is create a framework where they give money, and that's, I think, probably what we're going to be looking at. There is $3 billion on the table already in the federal government's budget. And we've had the parliamentary treasury talk about how much it's going to cost to fix long-term care. $14 billion is the overall price tag. So three is not going to make it, but it's supposed to be to start. So the question here is, what's the role of the feds? I think it's to institute money and give it to the provinces. And I'm hoping that the provinces don't get too uppity about it and are able to say, yes, we want to do this too. This is an important area of collaboration. We will institute these standards. We will require it. And yes, we knew your money, federal government, to do it. Now, Dr. Samir Sinha, who I, I'm sure you know of, if not know directly, Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health in Toronto, uh, he worked on these standards. And he himself says his greatest fear is that they will just sit on a shelf. Uh, if these standards are not implemented, if in fact they do just sit on a shelf, what's your fear? We're gonna break our system. Uh, there's this sense that somehow there's a future time or a later state that we can get this to. 
We already saw the military have to come into long-term care homes in crisis in Ontario and Quebec, two of our wealthiest and most well-provisioned provinces. They couldn't handle it. We know that budgets are broken in long-term care homes because they've had to spend extra money to live up for COVID requirements. And we're down 30% staffing. We were short before. So we are in a crisis state right now. So my worry is not just that they'll sit on the shelf, but that the whole system will break because we are not implementing what we know is the right thing to do. Laura Tamlin Watts, always good to speak with you. Thank you for this. Thank you. And that is our program for tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.